Uh, if you've been with us, uh, you know that we have been, uh, now this is the sixth week in a series on uh, James. We're calling it Faith That Works. Um, James is a letter written to first century, uh, primarily Jewish Christians, um, that is full of practical commands for how to live the Christian life. Practical command commands, but um, sometimes very difficult commands, challenging commands. And, and James wants us to know that unless uh, the faith that we profess, um, our words, um, uh, turns the gears of our actions, our faith actions, uh, if that doesn't happen, then our, our faith proves really to be no faith at all. And this morning, we're going to be in the passage that, where James makes that statement the most clear. We're going to be in the last part of chapter 2. As we work through uh, this letter each week, uh, I'll have the verses up on the screens that we're we're looking at. You can certainly follow along that way. Uh, If you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible, but you don't have one, our our ushers are coming down the aisle right now with uh, some Bibles. And if you'll just signal them somehow, they'd be happy to put a Bible in your hands and... uh, If you don't have one at home, please consider taking this one home as our uh, gift to you. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Russ Richardson uh, preached uh, the last part of James chapter 1 that in some ways um, was was the beginning of a three-week mini-series within the series on James uh, because uh, that message handed off to the message last week, which hands off to the one uh, this morning. Uh, In James chapter 1, Pastor Russ helped us to see where James says that we must be doers of God's word and not just hearers only. When we just listen to God's word but don't do it, James says we deceive ourselves. Uh, In verse 27 of chapter 1, James gave an example of what faith in action looks like. Last week, when we looked at the first half of chapter 2, we saw again that true faith doesn't show favoritism or or hold out on showing mercy to uh, the poor or others that we may have discriminated against. Uh, James told us last week, you can't claim to be a person who has received mercy from God and at the same time withhold mercy from others, right? Today, James is going to continue this description of true or living faith by comparing it to dead faith. Uh, He's going to use an example that harkens back to chapter 1, verse 27, and then again to chapter 2, the verses 2 through 4 there. Uh, But James is going to go further than that uh, this morning, and he's going to talk about how we become right before God. How are we justified before God? So uh, open your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 2. That's on page 975 of the Bibles that the the ushers just handed out. And uh, just before we go through this text this morning, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we we come this morning, uh, I I trust, as as sincere... uh, disciples 
wanting to learn from our master. And so we ask that you would speak to us through uh, your servant James this morning. Uh, and it's going to require as you speak to us, not only that we hear, but that, that our minds are at work understanding uh, some difficult things that James says. So help us in that regard. And then uh, we ask again, as we uh, do every week, that you would give us hearts to receive that and that, that your word, as we've just sung, your word planted deep in us uh, would, would have a good effect in our lives. It's de- intended effect. It's desired effect from you that it would, it would produce fruit in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we left off at verse 13 of chapter 2. And so this morning we're going to begin at verse 14, where James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? So James is continuing a line of thought that he began in chapter 1 in verse 22. He hit on it again in the opening verses of chapter 2. Namely this, that true faith affects the way we live. True faith affects the way we live. Uh, As we walk through this last part of chapter 2, we're going to need to define some terms here, some words that James uses, and they're very familiar words to us, but we don't want to make assumptions about what those words mean. So the first word that I want to help define for us is the word faith. The Greek word here is pistis. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as the word faith, sometimes as belief, sometimes trust, confidence, faithfulness. All of these are good definitions of of this word. Um, That Greek word or or, um, uh, words that use the same root are used 13 times in the 13 verses we have in front of us this morning. 13 times James will use that word. But he doesn't always use the word in the same way. Uh, A little later in this passage, James is going to use that very word to describe demons who believe in God. Hopefully, we know that James isn't calling us to that kind of belief, right? He has something else in mind for us, something else for us to aspire to. Uh, James helps us understand what kind of faith he wants us to have at the end of verse 14. He means for us to have a faith that saves. It's, It's in his question there, right? He wants us to have a saving faith. Now, another word that James uses that that we're going to need to understand is the word works, or some of your translations might say deeds. Uh, The the Greek word for it is ergon. Uh, The word shows up 11 times in these 13 verses. So it's also a pretty important word in this passage. When James uses the word works or deeds, he's, he's talking about deeds that show obedience to God. Again, as as James says in chapter 1, true believers are doers of the word. They do what God says. They obey 
God. Okay, so that's what he means by works, works of obedience to God. So James begins in verse 14 with two questions. First, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? So James introduces sort of a hypothetical person here who claims to have faith. Important there that we see that. This is a person who claims to have faith. And I think it's implied anyway that this person thinks that their faith is a saving faith. But, James says, that they do not have works. They claim to have faith, but they don't have works. And again, James means by this deeds that show obedience to God. And so James says, what good is that claimed faith? What good is that kind of faith? He wants to know what does that claimed faith actually accomplish? And his second question in verse 14 suggests uh, what James thinks the, the answer to his first question is, right? He asks, can such faith save him? And James's expected answer, though some of you may be pondering that, his expected answer is, no, it cannot. And he's going to show us why. In fact, he's going he's gonna to do more than just suggest that such faith cannot save us. In addition to saying it cannot save, James will plainly state that this claimed faith, unaccompanied by works, is dead, is in fact demonic, is useless. I thought about using the word dud there just to stay with all the Ds, but it's useless, verse 20. It does not justify a person. And again, in verse 26, he says, it is dead. Those are strong words, aren't they? And I imagine in this room right now, there are people who sort of want to push back against this for one reason or another. And I think James knew that his readers in the first century, and likely anyone who would read it after, would also Pushback. And so the rest of the chapter is James giving examples about why this is so, why this kind of claimed faith really is, is just these things. And his first example sort of overlaps last week's example of how we treat the poor. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Stay warm. Be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now, the point of the example is pretty obvious, isn't it? Another way we might say it is talk is cheap. If you tell a cold and hungry person to go on their way and, and find someplace warm to stay and, and get some food, God bless you. What has that done? Are, are, are they any less cold than they were when, when they came and asked for help? Are they any less hungry? No. You've said shalom, peace be with you. Be warm and well fed. And on you go 
with your life. And James says that in the same way this claimed faith, a words-only faith, that's the comparison he's making here, that doesn't have works, is dead. I'm going to say it again. What James means by works is deeds of obedience to God. And I think in the context of what we saw last week, remember this is all one letter that James is writing. It's not a brand new line of thinking. So in the context of what we saw last week and even what we saw in chapter 1, I think James is still talking about that law of freedom or what he said uh, last week, the, the royal law of love. Love for God and love for neighbor. If you, if you missed last week or if you've missed other messages in this series, you, you might want to go back and listen. They're, they're really important. So James is saying, uh, this, this faith can't save, Right? Verses 18 and 19, James uses an ancient form of argument where he introduces an opponent who holds uh, an opposing view to his own and, and holds a conversation with them. And so this imaginary opponent says to James, one person has faith, another has works. James' opponent is basically saying, hey man, Whatever works for you, dude. I have faith, you have works. We're good, right? To which James says, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. See, James is saying that his opponent's claimed faith lacks any evidence. His opponent can't show James his faith because there's nothing to show for it. There are no works of obedience to God. It's nothing but words. On the other hand, James says, my faith is evidenced by my works. He's not bragging. He's he's having this conversation about why works must accompany faith. Verse 19, it's, it's almost as if James's opponent began reciting the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. Or maybe James is just sensing that or proposing that with this imaginary opponent. Either way, verse 19, I think, is clearly pointing to the Shema. And James says, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. See, James says that intellectual belief in God isn't going to cut it. His language here is strongly sarcastic, I think. So to this opponent who claims belief in God but doesn't have any evidence of belief in God, James says, well, good for you. Because even the demons believe that. And it's as if he he says, but at least they understand the holy God they say they believe in because they tremble in fear 
at his name. We see this in the Gospels whenever Jesus confronted demonic forces. They knew who he was. There's a lot of places where they... What do you... What have you to do with us, Son of Man, Son of God? They knew who he was, and they trembled at it. So James doesn't, doesn't think much of this claim when people says, well, I believe in God. So just as a review, James posits in verse 14 that faith without works can't save you. Next, he compares this workless faith to telling cold, hungry people to go find food and shelter. It it doesn't do any good. It's dead, he says. And then James begins this imaginary conversation with a person who says belief in God is enough. And James says, in a sense, that kind of belief is actually demonic. That's not from God. Verse 20, James continues his sort of diatribe here that he's in. I mean, he, he won't let go of this. Here he calls into question his opponent's intelligence. That's not very nice, is it? You senseless person! Are you even willing to learn that faith without works is useless? There's a, there's a bit of a play on words here in the Greek text that, that isn't captured very well in our English Bibles. Uh, the word that James uses for works is ergon. The word we've translated as useless is argos. It's, it, it's the same root, but in the negative. So it literally means uh, it doesn't work. So, so James is saying, a, a literal, literal translation would be here, Faith without works doesn't work. You see it? That's, that's really brilliant in the, in the Greek, right? And, and James calls his opponent senseless, a fool. I've had this conversation with people. It's a very frustrating conversation where, where they're convinced that their belief in God their empty belief in God, their empty, really, belief in Jesus is enough. There's absolutely no evidence in their lives that they have what James would call a saving faith. And yet they seem foolishly unwilling to even consider the thought that they might be wrong on this. And the tragedy is their eternity depends on seeing this or not. It's very frustrating and and incredibly sad. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? When I I see the word useless here, I I think of a TV show that Becky and I uh, enjoy watching. It's a BBC program out of Scotland um, about a Scottish laird and their family. I know some of you uh, have seen this because I've, I've talked to you about it. Uh, the, the head of the family, uh, his name is Hector, and uh, Hector MacDonald. Okay? 
And Hector has tried in vain to teach his dog to fetch. And no matter what he does, the dog just sits there and looks at him. Happy, but just sits there and looks at him, right? And after, I don't know how long, of attempting to teach his dog to do something, he decides on the dog's name. And he names the dog Useless. Which I I really love, but it's not very nice, but... The sad part of the story uh, is that the, the one day uh, Hector was using some dynamite uh, to blow something up, and that just happened to be the day that Useless figured out how to fetch. And so he brought this, the lit stick of dynamite back to Hector and ran off before Hector could... It was, of course, Hector's demise. It was their way of writing him off the show. Why do I say that? Um, A useless faith will be the demise of anyone who holds on to it. Um, It's a tragedy. Well, to try to teach his opponent that faith without works is useless... James turns to two examples from the Hebrew Bible um, uh, to make his point. So his first example is Abraham. We, We see this in verse 21. James says, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. These four verses are some of the most difficult verses, I think, in all of the New Testament. Especially for for anyone who is familiar with the writings of Paul. Especially in Romans and somewhat in Galatians. Now I'm going to try to address the tension that that we might be feeling here in a few minutes. But first, let's make sure that we all understand who James is talking about um, and and what he is talking about in regards to Abraham. So we find the story of Abraham back in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to take time to go through the whole story of Abraham's life. There's obviously not time. but, But one of the references that James makes is to Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. You can make a little note of it and go back and read it later. But this is the part of Abraham's story where God promises to make his, uh, th- this very old, childless man um, the, f- the father of a, a great nation. Um, uh, God promises that, well, he has Abraham look up at the skies, at the stars, and he says, you're your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. It's amazing, right? And Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God. When he took him out to look at the, the stars and said, this is how numerous your, your descendants will be, Abraham believed him. And it says that the Lord credited 
it to him as righteousness. Well, about 15 years later, now we're in Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah finally have a son. They name him Isaac, which means laughter, and there's a whole story about that. But uh, they have this baby, finally. And then about 12 years later, now Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith. We know a little bit about testing from chapter 1 in James, right? God tests Abraham's faith, and he does it by testing his obedience to him. And he does it in a, what sounds just like a horrific way. He asks him to sacrifice this son, Isaac, on an altar. And Abraham believed that God would somehow provide. We know this because in the story, as he and Isaac ascended up the hill, he told his other servants to wait there for them and that he and the boy would return to them in a little bit. Abraham didn't know how God was going to provide, but he knew God was going to provide. Maybe, maybe he believed God would bring Isaac back from the dead. We don't know. But he believed God would provide. Okay? So Abraham was, was still believing. Here, almost uh, 30 years later, He was still having faith, still obeying God from that place of faith. And that's the part of the story uh, that, that James is referring back to. And James tells us that the authenticity of Abraham's faith was shown in his obedience. Or to sort of reverse it, Abraham's obedience was working with his faith to make his faith complete or filled up were perfected, complete, not like the empty or useless faith that James has described earlier. So Abraham's a great example. And then uh, James ends his section on Abraham by saying, so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, here's the rub. Any of us who have, have spent time with Paul in Romans, our our heresy alarms are kind of going off. Anyone? Yeah? Good. Says you know your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, let me me show you what I mean. I'm going to put uh, James and Paul side by side here. So James says in 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James says you're justified by works. Paul says you're justified by faith. Uh, You could say James says you're justified by works and not by faith alone. And Paul says you're justified by faith and not by works or works of the law anyway. Looks like a contradiction, doesn't it? It should, to you, look like a contradiction. And what's kind of crazy, I think, is that both James and Paul use Abraham as their example for backing this up. Well, that doesn't help much, does it? Right? So how are we supposed to reconcile this? Are we supposed to reconcile this? Let me, let me start by uh, using an illustration that, that you've probably been distracted 
by this whole time. Um, and, and I'm supposed to, uh, Buzz, if you're watching, I'm supposed to, to say this one's for you because apparently Buzz used to do this um, when he would preach here. So uh, I had hoped to have like real adult size balls here. Uh, that didn't work out because of the snow. But uh, what is this? Football. Good. Right answer. What is this? What? What? There's some disagreement. Depends where you're from. Same word, different meaning. Uh, if, if you're living in most places of the world, this is a football. If you're in the U.S., you probably call this a soccer ball, right? Now, if I show up to your uh, Thanksgiving Day turkey bowl to play football, with that, we're going to have a problem, aren't we? It's not going to work. If I try to play football, American football, with English football rules, it's not going to work, is it? By the way, I understand why we call this a football, because you can't use your hands. (laughs) Just saying. I did used to play this kind of football, so I might be a little bit biased. One Bible scholar says that Paul is using James's vocabulary, football, but not James's dictionary. Uh, while James and Paul are using the same words, they don't mean the same things by those words. And that's, that's the way that uh, virtually every uh, Bible scholar um, Tries to, tries to reconcile this apparent contradiction that we have here. Uh, Douglas Moo, uh, I think rightly says, that most Christians take their understanding of the word justify from Paul's writings. Um, he's written about it a lot, a lot. Um, but how did, how did Paul use the word? Paul uses justify to mean God's initial judicial verdict of innocence pronounced over the sinner who by faith trusts in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Right? That's what Paul means by justified. And that's why so many of us know that the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. That, that judicial pronouncement And this is why Paul, when he talks about it, he talks about Abraham's initial belief in um, Genesis 15, when God walked him out to look at the night sky. Paul points to that, right? But James wrote before Paul, and he doesn't use the word justification in the same way as Paul does. 
James uses the word more like righteousness, um, which he understands to mean correct conduct as defined by God's law, and probably especially because he, he grew up with him and so much of what James says points back to Jesus. When he talks about God's law, he probably especially means the, the Jesus-shaped understanding of that law, meaning the royal law or law of liberty that we looked at last week. See, the tricky part is both justified and righteous share the same root. It's the same word, really. What do you mean by that word when you use that word? So, for James, and and maybe this diagram, it's not really a diagram, it's a word diagram, entrance into the kingdom is dependent on commitment to Jesus, following Jesus, righteousness, same word as justified, but righteousness is the conduct expected of the disciple of Jesus, which Jesus talks about all over the place, Matthew 5 especially. And then justify or justified refers to the verdict pronounced over a person's life at the last judgment. A verdict placed, uh, uh, based on the evidence of that person's faith, what they have done. Uh, uh, Tony Morita uh, says, it, says it this way, which I, I think is helpful. He says, when Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he is saying we are justified by wholehearted trust in the grace of Christ, not from any work that we can do to earn our way to God. Sound familiar? And Marita says, James is in the background saying, Amen to that, Brother Paul. And when James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he is saying we are not justified by some cold intellectual belief in Jesus that even demons have. Instead, he says a man is justified by a faith that produces this radical obedience and sacrifice. And Marita says, and Paul is in the background saying, Amen, Brother James. See, they're not opposing each other. They're just coming at it from different angles. They, they, they have probably two different audiences. James, we know, is writing to um, Jewish believers. Uh, Paul uh, is called the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? They have different audiences. They're, they're saying different things, but, but using the same words. Uh, so these two guys are actually uh, not in conflict. They're, they're complementary of each other. We need to keep moving here. Uh, James' second Old Testament example is Rahab. So James uh, moves from talking about Abraham, this Jewish patriarch, to Rahab, a pagan prostitute. He says in verse 25, In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? The story of of Rahab is found in Joshua 2. Um, Rahab was a Canaanite woman uh, living in Jericho. Um, 
making her living as a prostitute. Uh, Rahab hid some Jewish spies that had come to scout out the city of Jericho. But the, the story, if you, if you go back, and you should, go back and read Joshua 2. The story clearly shows that Rahab had heard the stories about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, right? She knew about Israel's escape from Egypt, about how the Red Sea had parted and they walked across on dry land. She knew that God had gone before Israel to win victories over their enemies. She somehow even knew that God had given Jericho over to Israel even before it happened. She said that. I know that God has given Jericho to you. So she had some understanding of who God was, certainly not the same understanding that Abraham had after walking with God and being faithful in his belief and his obedience. But Rahab takes this little bit of understanding and some of it was probably wrong even, right? She takes that little bit of understanding she has about Yahweh and she does her part to help these Jewish spies. It was a dangerous act of faith on her part, belief on her part. Because if she gets found out, she's going to be killed, of course. She'll be treated as a spy herself. She's aiding and abetting, right? But she did it. And her family was spared when Israel did come and invade Jericho. Is that enough to call a person justified? Well, maybe not. I don't know. But what we know about Rahab was that it wasn't the end of her obedience to God. Her faith and obedience to God grew and grew. Apparently, she married a a Jewish person somewhere along the way because she ends up showing up in the genealogy of Jesus. She's, a, I think it's great-great-grandmother of King David. And so she ends up in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew's gospel. She's listed again in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Rahab put her faith, however small it was, she put it into action. And James says she was justified or declared righteous for it. It's really amazing what James does here. Because alongside this this famous and and celebrated ancestor of the Jewish people, a a man uh, who is called a friend of God, alongside that he places this obscure Gentile woman of low moral character. I think in doing that, James is saying, anyone, anyone, is capable of acting on their faith in this way. Whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute. God doesn't show favoritism that way. We learned that last week. Anyone is welcome to put that faith into action. James finishes the chapter by saying what he said all the way through, that faith without 
works is dead. He says, for just as the body without the spirit or breath, same word, is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So six different times in five different ways, he has said it again and again and again. Faith without works does not result in salvation. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works, we could say, is demonic even. It's useless. It does not justify a person. Faith without works is dead. We get a a glimpse of the kind of faith that James is calling us to if we look at Hebrews 11, that passage that we sometimes refer to as the hall of faith. It could also be called the hall of works or the hall of faith and works. Because the, the faith that, uh, of those mentioned in Hebrews 11 produced good works. And you can see it in the language there. By faith, Abel offered a more access, acceptable sacrifice to God. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Noah built an ark. 11.7. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob. Hebrews 11.20. By faith, Moses left Pharaoh's court and chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. They all did something. And then when you get to verse 32 of Hebrews 11, the writer continues with this. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle and put foreign armies to flight. Friends, our faith is a doing faith or it's no faith at all. I'm going to close uh, with the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, familiar words to us. Um, But listen to them again. They, They call us back to James's first example in verses 15 to 16. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord... When did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality? 
or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't even visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer them. I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous will go into eternal life. Let's pray. I think all of us this morning, all of us this morning need to be taking account of the authenticity of our faith. This passage isn't a comparison of faith and works. It's a comparison of living faith and dead faith. Is my faith a useful faith or a useless faith? Is it the faith of demons who believe in God but don't obey him? Or is it the saving faith that both James and Paul speak of? Or as Jesus has said, is it the faith of goats or sheep. And if it's not the regenerative, obedient, morally transforming faith in Jesus that James talks about, it's not going to cut it. We need something different. If your faith doesn't match up to what James is talking about here, don't you want to step into the kind of living faith, saving faith that James talks about? Lord Jesus, we want, I want that kind of faith. We want a faith that is saving and living and useful. And so we come to you this morning, not trusting in our own works to save us. You alone can do that, Lord Jesus. But we come asking for you to build in us the kind of faith that makes us like sheep, not goats. That makes us like Abraham or Rahab or all the others listed in the hall of faith who did something because of their faith. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.